Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial subjects with interesting people. And unfortunately, um, we are going to be discussing uh, the invasion of Ukraine, which seems to be uh, one of the, the only topics that we can really uh, get into in, in any depth uh, with the news cycle these days, uh, unfortunately, at the expense of what the Ukrainian people are suffering right now, given this invasion from Russia. Um, and, and because of that, I want to bring on as my guest this week, uh, Boris Rivkin, who's a, a friend of mine, um, but also has been one of the best um, and, and most reliable commentators, uh, giving us analysis from both Russian and Ukrainian language sources, as well as Western and English sources um, in this whole in this whole um, sort of conflagration that has been, as much as anything, has been confusing with regard to information and what's even happening on the ground. Uh, Boris is a sole member of Montefly Holdings, LLC. Um, he's also the former national security advisor to Senator Cruz. And his policy analysis has appeared in National Review, National Interest, Business, I, Business Insider, as well as The Diplomat. Um, and, and like I said, he's 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 one of my go-tos um, and has been for a very long time on on um, relations in this part of the world. Uh, and I think his analysis has become just that much more important given what, unfortunately, we are seeing over there. So so welcome to High Noon, Boris. Hi, Ness. Thanks for having me. Um, you're very welcome. So I wanted to start out just by asking you to give an overview for uh, people in America who don't necessarily have the background that you do um, in this part of the world. What is the brief history of, of Russia and Ukraine? How are they either related or not to each other? How have those distinct national identities developed um, perhaps over more recent history and, and how what ties them together uh, long term and, and kind of how how did how? Do, do, do each of these sides really see the other one, um, whether they see each other as brothers or as distinct national entities? Um, I, I know that's, that's that's a very, very long history, but if you could give us just a brief, brief overview. Sure. Um, I think there, that relationship has gone through a number of different phases, beginning with who is a Russian, who is a Ukrainian, who is a Belarusian, because Belarus is the kind of third part of that family of Slavic peoples, if you want to call it. Today, uh, I'm going to put the Polish factor to the side for now, because that's also a key part of the history that I'll touch on a tad later. I think that uh, there was a the Soviet period when all of these different countries were constituent republics of the Soviet Union. Prior to that, they were part of the Russian Empire as it developed. Uh, despite different political changes, they each maintain their separate languages, cultures, identities, uh, and distinctiveness as peoples. Uh, even if there were uh, differences as to, you know, at times who Ukrainians would consider to be Ukrainian versus, you know, depending on Ukrainians who just spoke Ukrainian, for example, or Ukrainians who spoke both Russian and Ukrainian or only spoke Russian or Ukrainians who weren't Christians versus, let's say, uh, Jews who lived for uh, a few centuries in what was the Pale of Settlement, which was this area where in the Russian Empire, Jews were restricted to living. And that covered a lot of arid territory of what is now in Belarus and Ukraine and that issue. So it's been a very complicated, multi-phase type of messy relationship over time. But I think that the consensus has certainly emerged after the Soviet Union collapsed for the most part. And these countries became internationally recognized, separate, sovereign, independent states that these really are very peaceful, uh, very closely related brother peoples. And that's the way that they're called in Ukraine. We're called, certainly called in Russia, Bratsky Narode in Russian. 
brother peoples who are very closely aligned, uh, have a very close intimate relationship, know each other very well. Uh, I think by current uh, estimates, something like 30% of Russians have family members in Ukraine, which is just incredible. So in, in some respects, it's almost like one and close to being one and the same people. They're different, but it, you know, numerous families have one parent from one country, one parent from another country, repeatedly exchanges between, you know, sister cities, between Moscow and Kiev and the rest, uh, which makes this a especially uh, debilitating, painful conflict for those of us who uh, were born there, have family who came from there, or have some kind of cultural, emotional family connection to, to all of this, uh, because it's really just tearing people apart completely unnecessarily, and it will might poison relations for a very long time to come. Uh, and just in terms of stepping back for a brief, more technical, historical overview of this, um, in terms of Ukraine specifically, uh, there was a period, really the kind of, I would call, uh, inflection point, turning point for Ukraine's emergence as a nation and national identity, which is still at the core of how that nation views itself in many ways, uh, really happened between around, we have to go back to maybe the 16th, 17th centuries, I think, really. I mean, it, it preceded that to a great extent, but those were, I think, kind of the key moments where a lot of this developed when this, now I'm going to bring the, the polls in for a moment. Uh, where at the time, Russia, Tsarist Russia, uh, especially in the, the late 16th and, and early 17th centuries, was really a Eurasian backwater. It wasn't really a European state, wasn't recognized as being a kind of economic player, a cultural player. Uh, and really, to a large extent, Russia, Rus in, in Russian, sort of the, the origins of Russia, owe a great deal to what came out of Ukraine, what came out of Kiev. Kiev and Rus was really the uh, origin or sort of the founding state, the founding political entity, na national entity that eventually developed into what we know as Russia today. Uh, so so that, that connection is always there at the center. But the Russia that emerged at that time uh, was really kind of an irrelevant secondary player. And the dominant state power in Eastern and Central Europe then was Poland. Uh, was called the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. So all of the countries today that comprise uh, the Baltic states, which would be Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, uh, and pretty the vast majority of Belarus, and then eventually almost all of Ukraine, uh, modern-day Ukraine, and then some other countries in Southern Europe that, that exist today, were all part of this huge Polish imperial state. And... Uh, and that ex and that was an economic powerhouse. It was really the center of cultural, political activity. Uh, and by the standards of Eastern Europe at the time, it really be developed uh, by, by, relatively speaking, more liberal types of institutions in terms of how uh, the citizens, the subjects interacted with the monarchy and uh, kind of local self-government without getting into too many details. So it was a clear break from what was happening in Tsarist Russia, which was always very, very centralized uh, and oriented toward absolutism of the reigning monarch. Uh, and Poland, as part of its imperial expansion, took over large parts of Ukraine, and there were major tensions and 
uh, that broke out into some very bloody conflict over time. Uh, and uh, a lot of misunderstandings. Uh, there were deep religious differences. Most Ukrainians were Orthodox Christians. Most Poles to this day, of course, are Catholic. And uh, that caused a lot of problems. The way that Poland opted to rule over Ukraine, not really understanding how Ukrainian society at that time was organized. And over time, that led to uh, the, a very, very poisonous relationship that boiled over into a huge popular uh, Cossack uprising led by uh, someone who became a kind of Ukrainian symbol of national liberation, independence, Bogdan Khmelnytsky, who was a hetman, who was in uh, Ukrainian, that's the leader, the chief of a large uh, kind of group of community of Cossack uh, uh, groupings or nations. And he led this huge revolt against the Poles, which really was very, very devastating in terms of the number of people who were killed and destruction of Polish, Polish cities and what have you. And that was a really critical shift in both Ukraine's identity as a separate independent entity and that eventually developed into their views of their own nationhood, Poland's relationship with Ukraine, and more importantly, Russia's relationship with Ukraine. Because as part of that conflict with Poland, uh, and the emergence of effectively the first truly independent Ukrainian state uh, in a very long time. The Ukrainians made a deal with the Russian Tsar for protection, effectively that they would be nominally independent, but functionally they would just have autonomy within a growing, what, what eventually would become the Russian Empire, uh, in exchange for assistance in defeating the Poles. And that relationship between the, the Ukrainians and the Russians formed the core of what has continued really until the end of the Soviet Union fundamentally. So up until that, from that point, up until Ukraine regained fully its independence, if you will, in 1991 when the Soviet Union broke apart, uh, Ukraine was always in one form or another connected politically to Russia, uh, with very, very brief periods where that wasn't the case, but those really lasted just a couple of years. Uh, and that uh, from a historical perspective, really goes to the heart of specifically Vladimir Putin's view of what Ukraine is and isn't, and the view of those who are trying to, to a large extent, either justify, explain, uh, whitewash, not really, in my view, put into proper context that this is a, that what Russia is engaged in now is an overt interstate war of aggression. Uh, and instead have tried to paint this as some kind of extension of a civil war inside Ukraine that, you know, why should we really, this is a distinction without a difference. Ukraine and Russia are pretty much one and the same. And it's really important to tease that out because that really forms the core of the ideological narrative that I think many in our part of the world, Western countries, but definitely in the United States have just not really bothered to engage in. So that, that, that really is where the history becomes very important. Yeah, there's maybe one bit of um, sort of, uh, let's say, Putin's propaganda that I want to discuss with you before we move to the actual what's happening on the ground uh, today. Um, and, and that is the, the second part of his justification, right, is, is the quote unquote denazification of, of Ukraine and of its, its, its uh, current government under Zelensky. Um, now, it's, it's not maybe because both of us have um, 
both Slavic and Jewish background, right? Uh, it, it doesn't come to a, a shock to us that there is considerable flirtation with the far right in Eastern European countries that often there, there are strong currents of anti-Semitism. Um, that, that's not, that's not a shock. Um, but the, why don't, can you address for us the claim that Ukraine's current government um, is somehow very deeply embedded with, with Nazis? Um, wh- what is the role of uh, another one of, of controversial Ukrainian national hero, Banderas, um, in all of this, the, the stuff that we hear on the internet about um, brigades of, of either far right or Nazis. Um, so, so to what extent does Nazism exist in Ukraine? Uh, to what extent is Putin using it as a rallying cry, perhaps another, you know, to try to, as, as everything in that region seems to be, always tied everything to World War II, to the Great Patriotic War, um, you know, I guess, why don't you sort out a little bit of fact from fiction uh, for us on, on that claim? Sure. I, I think we have to divide this into a few parts. It's not really a monolithic set, uh, uh, one set of reasons or monolithic um, kind of overview or uh, attempted explanation for, for why he's doing this. And the Russian state media has tried to uh, run with that narrative and, and how it emerged and why they're they're repeatedly coming back to this particular way of looking at the situation and what's happening. Um, so I think the first piece is um, just kind of starting from, from the end and going back a bit to the beginning. So uh, there is a, in the case of Putin personally, uh, a few deep personal resentments and grievances. Uh, there is a sense that Russia is not treated with quote unquote respect by the Western powers, that the Western powers can get away with things, with everything, and that Russia, despite having a nuclear deterrent, despite covering 11 time zones, despite having basically being a resource depot, uh, oil and gas in particular for uh, European countries and elsewhere, that Russia is not uh, able to get away, for some reason is held to a different standard and is not able to do that which the Western powers have repeatedly done themselves hypocritically and tried to, in his case, justify using the same what I would say political technologies, the same type of spin and justification uh, explanations as he's doing now. So uh, I want to kind of briefly go back to the situation that happened in Yugoslavia in 1999 and Kosovo. So there you had uh, the Western powers, NATO, uh, Britain and the U.S. in particular, this was during the Clinton administration, uh, claiming that there was a genocide of ethnic Albanians in Kosovo by Slobodan Milosevic, who was then uh, head of Yugoslavia in, in, in government Yugoslavia. Uh, and that justified a human- humanitarian intervention to stop that genocide, which led to a bombing of Yugoslavia and eventually Kosovo becoming, being put under UN uh, control, being split off from Serbia and eventually uh, recently, a number of years ago, be- uh, becoming an independent state, which most Western countries have recognized. So, and then, and Putin points to this. He's repeatedly referred to that precedent. He's also referred to Iraq of 2003. He's referred to Libya. And if you notice the, a lot of the official rhetoric that he has used in his own addresses, statements on why this invasion, quote unquote, from his perspective had to happen, that it was Russia defending itself against, like you said, and we'll get uh, dig deeper into that in a second, Nazis and ultranationalists and, drug addicts. He actually added that one too. 
and, uh, you know, and that this is a he's not officially Russian media is not allowed to refer to what's happening in Ukraine as a war right now. So it's, it uses this specific technical term that Putin used to describe it, which is a uh, special military operation. So that's meant to say that we're targeting these evil Nazis uh, in targeted attacks as a humanitarian intervention. We are peacekeepers. We are liberators. We're liberating the besieged, humiliated, as Putin called them, residents of eastern Ukraine in this Donbass region, which is in the uh, regions in the eastern part of Ukraine, in the Donetsk Basin, as it's called, from these evil forces. Uh, and this is a humanitarian intervention. So against the genocide, literally, that's his official position. So you notice this is exactly the same rhetoric, almost verbatim, that the Western powers used in Yugoslavia to intervene over Kosovo. So on the one hand, this is him definitely trolling the Western powers in the international community saying, well, if you use that rhetoric for a war that I don't consider justified, why can't I get away with it? And it's also lashing out at that grievance. Why could they do it? And why can't I? Even though from his perspective, clearly there was no genocide in Kosovo. That was just a classic realpolitik type of power grab move by the United States and NATO, exactly the same thing as he's doing now. So why can't I do what they've done? So that's one aspect of why he's using this rhetoric, cynically, very, very cynical. Um, the other element is that um, there, uh, there's, a, I think, a fundamental misunderstanding of Putin himself of what Ukraine is and isn't, and that gets to the historical kind of overview that we had a couple of minutes ago, that he fundamentally believes as an ideological matter that Ukraine is a fake country. He said that himself. He believes Russians and Ukrainians are basically the same people, uh, that a distinction without a difference, and that Ukraine is essentially the, the birthplace of Russia. The two countries belong together. And that uh, what happened in 1991 with the end of the Soviet Union, which is basically like what happened with the end of the Russian Empire, was an aberration that needs to be corrected. That Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia should be in one new federal union state, with Russia being its at its head, with him being its president, or whatever, basically leading its policy. And that's just the way that it should be, it, as an ideological matter. And that that's the way that he thinks in these sorts of somewhat neo-Soviet, neo-imperial terms. So that's another reason why, from his standpoint, the only people who would disagree with this are these ultranationalist Nazis. Because when you think of Nazis uh, and, and, and that rhetoric, that's why he keeps referring to Bandera, you just mentioned. Although interestingly, he can't even pronounce Bandera correctly. He keeps referring to these Banderaites. He calls them Benderaites. So there's actually a town in Ukraine called Bender. Uh, so he keeps referring to Benderaites and everybody's sort of joking in Ukraine. So I don't know what he has against the residents of Bender. They're kind of, you know, like three and a half people that are there. It's not really a big deal. So he can't, he, he's just confusing us. He's got everything mixed in his mind from Catherine the Great to Bandera to the Soviet Union. It's all in there in some kind of rather weird alphabet soup. And, um, and so, but from his perspective, that's the way that I think he views what's the Ukrainians, Ukrainian national identity, and, and, and that issue is an ideological matter that the only people who would oppose uh, unity with Russia are these, as he calls them, nationalist formations, neo-Nazis, these Banderaites, who are there 
uh, creating problems for the Ukrainian people who actually want Russia to liberate them. And so the government that Ukraine put in place uh, after the Maidan, as it was, that uh, 2014 uh, revolution, uh, political revolution in Ukraine, and we'll touch on that, I think, maybe in a second in a bit more detail, if you want, um, the origins of that. From Putin's perspective, uh, whoever should be ruling in Ukraine should be taking instructions from him in Moscow. And so the president of Ukraine, Yanukovych, in 2014, who was ousted, he fled. I mean, he basically lied to the public. Uh, he betrayed the public's trust. He then tried to brutally, lethally, tried to smash peaceful protests. And then that led to uh, months of popular uprising and protests that eventually led to him fleeing to Russia uh, to be protected, safeguarded by Putin. But from Putin's perspective, uh, everything that came after Yanukovych was illegitimate. He calls it a anti-constitutional coup uh, and said that the people who can't, despite the fact that there have been two national elections in Ukraine since then that were free and fair by every standard. And of course, Putin in Russia, there hasn't been a free and fair election since, if you want to be generous, 2003. Putin doesn't care about that. And his perspective is that whoever rules in Kiev, uh, Kiev in Ukraine, should be taking his orders. Yanukovych was his man. And so everybody who came after him who don't view him as their boss, supervisor, in effect, which Zelensky, the current president, certainly doesn't, and his predecessor, Poroshenko, who he defeated by 70, with 75% of the vote in the last elections, he didn't. Uh, that's not something that Putin wants to tolerate, ultimately. Uh, and uh, that, so that's sort of the second piece of that. So from Putin's perspective, this is, again, another deep personal resentment that in 2014, with all that happened with Maidan and what came after it, he felt himself personally betrayed. In other words, Yanukovych promised that he would uh, drop all plans to move toward Europe, switch over and move closer toward Russia, that that whole thing was settled. And then you had the, the, this random, from Putin's perspective, because Putin doesn't believe that people are actually uh, subjects themselves. He doesn't really believe that people on their own can actually rise up as individual citizens and disagree with the government's policy. So from his perspective, something else had to be at the forefront of, of all of this, of what happened in 2014 and what came after. So he blames the United States, NATO, uh, these ultranationalists. There have to be some other forces there because the, the idea that the Ukrainians themselves don't actually want to be part of Russia, and as he, as, as he would term it, uh, the new Russian, the Russian world, or Navarusia, or the new Russia, or whatever new state he wants to build, to him is not something that he can understand. It sort of falls outside his calculus. So that's the second part of the personal grievance that he has. The first was, why is the West getting away with what I'm trying to do here, and I'm not allowed to? And the second part is this about what Ukraine is and isn't, and his complete lack of understanding of Ukraine. So, so the third part of this is... Uh, what relevance politically, uh, real role and influence do these, any actual nationalist parties or groups have in Ukraine today? And to a large extent, they were very influential because they were armed and better organized in 2014 during that Maidan rising against the protests against Yanukovych that led to uh, his removal and his fleeing the country and uh, the changes that happened since then. But over time, they've lost a lot of political influence. Uh, I think most of those parties barely even pass the parliamentary threshold. They maybe have a few deputies in the Ukrainian parliament. 
they really are on the fringes. They're there, but to say that they in any way represent even close to a majority, much less a significant minority of Ukrainian public opinion uh, is absurd, especially considering who the current president is. Uh, I mean, which, which is, again, we keep coming back to this, but it's kind of it just, just says uh, something about the cynicism of what's going on, that you have someone who's not exactly coy or shy about hiding that he's fully Jewish, uh, winning 75% of the vote in the Ukrainian, the last Ukrainian election, winning a majority in every single region of Ukraine, with the exception of one in uh, uh, the very far west uh, against Poroshenko uh, in that election, and him being referred to as a drug addict and a neo-Nazi by Putin. That, that's, that pretty much tells you a lot of what you need to know about what's happening here. And nobody disputed that Zelensky was elected president. I mean, there were people who hate Zelensky, continue to criticize him. I was a very vocal critic of Zelensky for quite a number of years since he was elected in 19, really almost from the beginning. Uh, even some of his former allies were very disappointed. He had an approval rating before the uh, war broke out of about 40% and falling. But nobody disputed that he was elected president of Ukraine, including all of these so-called neo-Nazi, whatever you want to call them, ultra-nationalist or more nationalist uh, parties in Ukraine. So really, you know, to, to kind of get into the technicalities of how influential these people are is really investing in, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I'm going to say this and I know we might get some pushback. Oh, here, you know, we warned about this, you know, he's falling for it, that that's, he's painting a narrative, but it's really true. This is disinformation. I mean, this is a pure, absurd level of disinformation and deflection uh, equivalent to the Russians referring to what's happening in Eastern Ukraine as genocide, supposedly, uh, and then uh, claiming what they're doing right now is a special military operation, that, that they're peacekeepers, this is an anti-fascist liberation. So if you want to believe that, if you want to get into who, uh, you know, what is the membership of the, this infamous Azov battalion that we, uh, that's uh, reported on quite frequently in the Ukrainian army, how influential is the Azov battalion today? And, what does all of that mean? What are they guiding? I mean, this is just res respectfully repeating almost verbatim. If you watch Russian state media, uh, which I think many of these people who are repeating this don't, some of them are just bots, I think, but some of them probably don't and they're just not informed of what they're saying. That's literally what they're saying. And in fact, Putin in his address, most recent one commenting, where he uh, called on the Ukrainian military to stage a coup against the democratically elected government of Ukraine. In other words, nobody disputes that the election was free and fair. You can hate Zelensky like him, but he has a democratic mandate, whatever you want to say about what he did subsequently in his term. Putin openly called on the Ukrainian military to stage a coup, oust Zelensky, and he'll negotiate with them. And he prefaced that call to mutiny, commit treason openly, by saying that the Russian army isn't actually fighting the Ukrainian military. So as far as Putin is concerned, officially, what the Russian army is doing is fighting, as he called them, nationalist formations who are using civilians as human shields. So the Ukrainian army, I guess, is on the Black Sea coast, you know, playing hopscotch or, you know, para paragliding. I don't know what the Ukrainian army is doing as far as Putin is concerned, but apparently they're not really doing anything. There are these nationalist formations of Nazis running around that he's fighting. Uh, although it's kind of interesting that, uh, you know, apparently... Uh, and, and we can we'll, we'll talk more about this maybe near the end in terms of what's happening now. Today, there was a very dramatic escalation of uh, indiscriminate artillery barrages of 
civilian neighborhoods and infrastructure in Kharkiv, Kharkiv, the second largest city in Ukraine, and now Kiev as well, uh, using grads and smirshlies uh, are the kind of uh, long, uh, long, short, long range artillery uh, batteries and kind of uh, artillery munitions. Uh, and against residential neighborhoods, uh, uh, apartment buildings, a mall was uh, uh, shot at with artillery, with the sort of mass artillery fire in Kharkiv. And the majority of the Kharkiv population of that city is Russian speaking, ethnic Russian. The people who Putin is supposedly looking to liberate from the Nazis, he's reducing their residential neighborhoods to rubble. So you have to, when, you know, when people jump on this and, and, and they start to get into play along, choose to play along with what I call political technologies, uh, as I would, that's sort of the language of the KGB I'm going to sort of employ here. Uh, they're basically feeding into that nonsense deflection. It's really cynical. Uh, it's absurd. It's not factual. And uh, it, it really just complete. It, it essentially feeds into this narrative that the Ukrainians don't really know what they're doing, that they've been held hostage, apparently, by this small fringe group of elements, and that it's not the Ukrainian nation that's now resisting a war of aggression. And it's not the Ukrainian nation that can decide for itself what it wants to go. And it's not the Ukrainian nation that elected the Jewish guy Zelensky in the last election that uh, they, they're not really subjects. They can't make the, those decisions for themselves. And also completely. And if that was the case, by the way, then the Russians would not be suffering the kinds of losses that they're currently suffering in men and material. Uh, then this war would have been over in a few days. And in fact, that was Putin's original thinking, in my opinion that he really counted on all of this being over in maybe two, four days maximum. This would be a very, very quick campaign. Why? Because the people would be out there with flowers, greeting the Russians as liberators. And in fact, you have literally the entire country, tens of thousands of people, uh, and, and engaged in really a patriotic war effectively now uh, against uh, Russian aggression, which is exactly what it is. And we have to call it that. And if that wasn't the case, then... Putin would be making far greater progress than he is. So you can just see all of these internal contradictions and, you know, make, make your own inferences from that. Yeah, that was actually where I was going to go next. I was going to ask you um, whether this inability of Putin's to confront the fact that there is broad resistance, um, you know, right down to civilians arming themselves uh, to, to attempt to thwart a Russian takeover in Ukraine, his inability to confront that. Um, how that's affecting how he's prosecuting this war. If, if, as you say, he expected it, uh, to go, to go more quickly. Um, what is the state where we're having this conversation on Monday at late Monday afternoon, this will only be released on Wednesday. So, um, there very, very well, maybe some, some, um, twists and turns and, and, uh, some situation may be very different on the ground in two days than it is right now. Um, but as of now, is, is there any hope, um, for, Ukrainian resistance here? Um, or is is this essentially a turning point where Putin realizes actually his original plan of trying to prosecute this very quickly and getting, you know, greeted as a liberator, that's not going to happen. Um, it seems like we are seeing, especially in the last 12 hours, a turn towards more aggressive bombardment and targeting of civilians. Um, you know, I guess, is there a series of events where this plays out where Ukrainians have any hope of keeping some part of national sovereignty um, and, and avoiding 
uh, I guess a worst worst case scenario for them. Um, and then on top of that, what what factors does that depend on, and what factors do you think are going to guide Putin and and how he responds to this realization that in fact Ukrainians don't want their country to be con- controlled by Putin's government? Yeah, I think that um, it really is a question of what other red line is Putin prepared to cross? How far is he willing to go with this? Where he is mentally? And I don't even like to usually get into that kind of psychoanalysis and not really a question for me, but I was one of the people who was convinced he wouldn't actually go through with an invasion or at least didn't think he would uh, weeks ago, that he was, that this was an extreme form of saber rattling to extract concessions. Again, he's done this time and again and backed off repeatedly from uh, the Western powers because he, I thought, uh, would internalize exactly the, the scale of the resistance that he would be confronting, the body count, the loss in equipment, that this would not be a blitzkrieg, this would not be an easy cakewalk operation of a few days. Uh, now I'm not really sure anymore, and I thought then he might even opt for some kind of a limited incursion, limited offensive outside of those separatist republics in eastern Ukraine from Crimea, but the fact that he went literally toward the worst case scenario and opted for this regime change war of aggression to take Kiev in a few days, uh, kill or forcibly exile the government and then effect put the country under occupation for all intents and purposes. I think the goal would be to take the central and eastern parts of Ukraine, annex some more territory there, maybe all of Donetsk and Lugansk regions, uh, maybe a land bridge between Crimea and, uh, and those separatist areas. Uh, just formally annex all of that to Russia. I think that might have been the original plan that he eventually, that he came up with. Um, and then install effectively a Vichy state type state like the Germans had in half of France during World War II for a few years, uh, which would be governed by, which would be nominally independent, but functionally governed by a puppet. Uh, and there were a few candidates that were floated around already. We know who they, who they were. Uh, from the Kremlin, who would be basically like a Yanukovych and would be taking instruction from Moscow on most policy issues, and maybe some part of Ukraine, modern Ukraine in the West, uh, that would hold out because you have the Carpathian Mountains, uh, uh, so the topography is more favorable toward a kind of protracted guerrilla partisan resistance effort there, and uh, with some more Western support, they would be able to hold out. So it would be kind of like Yugoslavia during World War II or Vichy France, effectively. That's how Ukraine would be partitioned uh, and occupied and administered. I think that judging by what has been done, that was the plan that he came to. And I think that he came to believe, I thought that he would internalize how much resistance he would be facing, the popular patriotic war type national call to arms and and, and scale and, and the professionalism also in determination of the Ukrainian regular army. But I think he did. At this point, I have to acknowledge that he just didn't anticipated. He may have just bought into his own uh, musings, his own assumptions about how quickly this would all go and how receptive to this invasion most Ukrainians would be. Uh, So I think now, based on what he has said yesterday, uh, openly engaging in nuclear blackmail, so floating, raising the nuclear card, although people were starting, you know, uh, were tweeting about Armageddon, uh, I mean, uh, that, that wasn't exactly what, 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 what he called for in terms of putting Russia's nuclear weapons on high forces on high alert. That, that wasn't exactly it. You know, there's, there's no need to hide in your basements yet. Um, but uh, 
just to let people know, you know, as if we didn't already, that, you know, the deterrent, that, that that's there. So he's pulling out the nuclear car. He's done this now twice in the space of about a week. And the escalation today with the indiscriminate bombing of these civilian neighborhoods and civilian targets, to me, says he's prepared for a throw, another throw of the dice. He's open to doubling down. His original plan clearly has failed. I, you know, based on the sources that I follow, Russian sources, Ukrainian, but especially Russian sources who get leaks from uh, inside Russian intelligence agencies and from who have some understanding of the Kremlin's current thinking, uh, he's fuming. In other words, he, he really doesn't understand why this is going not according to plan. And I think he's prepared to double down. He sent, uh, if you, if, uh, those who kind of even follow this a bit, Ramzan Kadyrov, who's the strongman, brutal, uh, puppet of Putin who runs Chechnya. He's brought him and his special operations troops into Ukraine to assist with occupation duties and to hunt down the Ukrainian leadership uh, to, to spread terror as well. And, uh, and now, of course, with this artillery escalation. So I think he's prepared to double down. I don't know if he's prepared to go all the way at this point. Honestly, I think he kind of has lost sense of reality. I, I mean, again, I, I usually would not say this. I'm not, I really do not know what his psychological profile is at this point. Uh, what worries me personally is the fact that there are Russian sources, commentators in Russia, uh, who are, you know, Kremlin critics who do this for a living and trying to understand the various moves, who very soberly over the last 24 to 48 hours have said, but especially over the last 24 hours, that they do not put the chance of his actually making the decision to use nuclear weapons at zero. So there could actually be, even if it's a two to 5% chance of him actually going for the button, they do not rule that out at this point. Uh, that, and for, for a whole, for a number of reasons that he, that, that his understanding now of what is rational has so greatly diverged from our understanding of what is rational that that really could be a game changer that we that nobody really considered or factored in, even as late as a week ago. Um, but in terms of on the ground, I do think his original plan failed, and now he's definitely lunging for another big push to try to conventionally break resistance. Uh, he doesn't want, I, I think, to be dragged in to a bloody urban battle over the large cities. That would mean terrible casualties. I mean, Kiev has a population of over two and a half million people, tens of thousands of small arms, Molotov cocktails. I mean, there'll be people fi firing from every window and basement and corner. Uh, tanks are really useless in, in that kind of environment. I mean, this would be very, very difficult for the Russians to sustain. This is going to be Afghanistan. This is going to be the Chechen wars again. This is going to be like some of what they faced in, you know, Hungary in 1956. I mean, this is the stuff of nightmares for them. They don't have the, I think, ability to sustain that. They might eventually decide to lay siege to some of these cities if they can't capture them, to try to maybe starve the population out. I don't know. That's been floated by some experts. Uh, but I think right now he's still at the phase where a big escalatory push might still bring about a turning point and break resistance and demoralize the population enough to see a, sh a kind of a weakening, slackening of resistance. The original plan was we take Kiev, Zelensky and his government flee or we kill them. 
we install our administrator, uh, and uh, that would demoralize the, the other cities would quickly surrender and most of the remaining resistance would melt away. And now I think it shifted to let's double down through these more conventional means to sow enough chaos and panic to break the remaining will to continue on. But if this continues on for much longer, maybe another week or two weeks, certainly, and this becomes more of a kind of war of attrition, as it's called, a, a more of a protracted type of situation, I'm not sure uh, what kind of, if he's going to be looking for an off ramp. Um, and those discussions might already be happening inside the Kremlin. I think that uh, the repeated waving of the nuclear card, I'm, I think, is making people nervous. The sa- some of the sanctions, the targeted sanctions, are definitely causing, I think, uh, in my view, a lot of problems for the inner circle. So it really is just a case of trying to align his own risk calculus how far he's willing to go versus how far almost everyone in his inner circle, the factions in the Kremlin, are willing to let him go before they intervene. And what kind of guarantees could he potentially be given to leave the stage? You know, that uh, uh, I'm 70, uh, I, I think it's time for me to uh, to step back and I won't be running, running in quotation marks in 2024, won't seek another mandate and uh, quote unquote uh, continue on. And uh, maybe it's time for me to find an exit. That or, uh, again, I hate to say it, but there's just too much, too many unknowns now. You know, it it strikes me that, at least for me personally, and I don't know nearly as much about this as you do, um, I've always thought that Putin is quite popular in in Russia. um, And I think he has been quite popular in Russia. I know that there has been some large-scale resistance. Um, Navalny certainly has been... Um, especially with with his grand sacrifice, which again we're seeing with with Zelensky. Um, there's nothing that that speaks, I think, to uh, Slavic peoples quite like individual courage and sacrifice. Um, and, and Navalny going back into Russia, knowing that he would be uh, put in prison. Uh, but but even so, I, my my kind of baseline assumption was always, no, this is a fundamental difference between the West and Russia. Um, in terms of national character, I expected Putin to remain quite popular and to, and resistance to be, you know, there, but not, um, not as substantial as I think many in the West would like to think, um, in terms of what's important to lots of people, uh, either in America or in the Western Europe in terms of, of, uh, liberal democracy and freedom and, and all of, all of those things. Um, I have been surprised by, how much anti-war sentiment there seems to be um, in Russia uh, against this war. And then also, I mean, you mentioning here something that I would have thought even five or six days ago, I would have thought is completely unthinkable that uh, this this may really threaten Putin's regime in Russia. Um, so one, what do you think the situation is um, in terms of, of uh, support or... Um, opposition to this war within Russia. And then two, the big, the big thing we haven't even touched on yet is, uh, you know, those of us in the West, um, America, Western Europe, um, the EU, NATO, uh, what could we have done to prevent the situation where we are now, you know, talking about a non-zero chance of nuclear war? Um, and two, um, what, what should we be looking at doing going forward? And what are the risks of, for example, placing the kind of sanctions that we have on Russia 
What are the advantages? Um, how should we think about our calculation uh, in the West in terms of how we can affect this war and um, you know, what the potential risks of, of doing so might be? Sure. And when I say non-zero chance, when I'm referring to Russian sources, I'm, I'm not referring to you know, the Russian state media, the usual kind of official line of, you know, we have this number of nuclear submarines and this number of ballistic missiles. And, you know, just to remind everyone of what our capability is, I'm talking about, you know, sober, independent commentators and analysts who, you know, are not paid to just repeat the Kremlin talking points and war rhetoric. They're there to more kind of in a balanced manner, intellectually assess what's going on. And that's what they're beginning to say. That's what really put me on guard, because otherwise I certainly wouldn't give it more any more thought than any other noise. Uh, I think to start with what we could have done, uh, I've said from the very beginning of this that we should have taken the absolute toughest, hardest position that we could have possibly taken, front-loaded, from the front-loading of sanctions to arming the Ukrainians to the teeth, and their whole variety. I mean, the, the, the Ukrainians were in the process of developing a more advanced, capable uh, air defense system, for example. I mean, the fact that we haven't been working with them to develop that for years, and now we're playing catch up on that front. And now you have the Europeans sending fighter jets to Ukraine, which breaks with their longstanding policy. And now you have the Germans basically overnight uh, after, you know, being prodded on by multiple American presidents over years. Now the Germans are committed to spending $100 billion on defense. Now they're going to spend more than 2% of their GDP on, on defense, meeting their NATO commitments. It shouldn't have taken Russia invading another European country for them to do it, but apparently, you know, uh, better late than never. Um, so, so you're seeing a lot of this beginning to take shape and you can push back and say, look, it, whether Biden, I, and this isn't a partisan point, it doesn't matter who the American president was, that maybe you know, given all of these divisions among the Western powers, which Putin, by the way, concluded would remain, would be there to result in watered down sanctions or would slow the response down, which would allow him to very quickly, if the war would last only two to four days, as he originally thought, then the Western response, I think, would have not been fast enough, I think. And, and that was his original calculus or part of it. Uh, what could we have realistically done, say, in the U.S., if you have, you know, Draghi in Italy, uh, lobbying to exclude Gucci from, uh, you know, luxury brands from from sanctions. I mean, if that's where the Europeans were as of a week ago, right, much less where they were a few months ago. I mean, what could the U.S. reasonably have done to actually organize any kind of serious, you know, with teeth, a really proper Western response on the front end to, to inhibit this? I'm not sure, uh, but I think certainly on the uh, arm, um, the militarization of, if you want to call it, the arming of Ukraine and having getting them prepared for this, uh, I think we shouldn't have spent days telling everyone Russia's about to invade, Russia's about to invade, as we heard from Blinken, from Biden. I mean, that means you have no deterrence. If, if you're insisting that Russia's about to launch this scale of an offensive, then you're basically admitting that you couldn't have done anything or can't do anything to prevent them from doing. So maybe, you know, that, that's almost an admission that we didn't do enough from the beginning, the fact that they kept doing it for days. Uh, so this should have been done weeks or months ago. And there were obviously political reasons because everything in America is political. Everything, and I've complained a lot about this, that we don't, we, we seem to care less about these sort of larger strategic questions, historical questions. Everything is about infotainment and personalities. Oh, the reason Biden didn't do this is because of Trump or Burisma or, or this or that, you know, like that, 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 cause, cause that's easy. You know, we, we, 
instead of going into a difficult analysis of what could have been done, this is what we waste our time on, Seth. Um, so I think that that should have been done months ago, if not years ago, really. Um, so, and we should have taken a very tough position in terms of signaling clearly what would happen immediately upon Russia doing what it did and, and already beginning to introduce the, uh, the, those uh, uh, countermeasures before they began, uh, before the final decision was made. We didn't do that. Uh, as I like to you know, refer historically to very briefly to what happened in uh, 1960 when another then Soviet leader, Khrushchev, was threatening to nuke London and Paris over West Berlin. He said, we're going to wipe out the American troops in West Berlin. We're going to nuke European capitals unless the Western powers relinquish their rights effectively to control over West Berlin. And de Gaulle, then the French president, took the hardest possible line on that and made it very clear, you know, what would be happening if Khrushchev was foolish enough to actually move beyond bluff to action to, to, to some sort of action. Like that, that needed to be the position taken from the beginning. The fact that we didn't and we wasted our time on legalese and trying to parse through this, uh, even if the, even if at the time we thought he wouldn't invade, I think was a terrible mistake. So, and, and then on the, and I'm sorry, that with that, your, your, the first question that you asked in terms of, um, uh, 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 in terms of how this would end for uh, Russian anti-war sentiment, right? Sorry. Right. How how does this interact? Because now we do have a situation where it seems like we've put very painful sanctions on Russia. The the ruble is crashing. Um, it, there, there are serious economic consequences at home for Putin now um, because of taking this action in Ukraine. To add to what frankly surprised me in terms of, and I'm not saying it's the majority, or I have no idea you know, how, how representative it is. But I will say that the level of anti-war sentiment that I saw um, surprised me in, in Russia. So what, what, what are his options now? Uh, if, if he is going to, as you say, probably enter a second phase of this war where he is going to double down, he's going to target civilians. Um, he's going to, to um, make much more vigorous conventional war on Ukraine. Um and at the same time, he's going to deal with massive economic problems at home and potentially a population that is already disinclined to this war. I mean, how, how do all those pieces fit together? Um, and and what are the what are the dangers of that of an unstable, let's say, Russian regime? I, I think that uh, certainly in the large cities, for the most part, Putin has lost them politically now for many years. I mean, to be generous, maybe a decade, uh, you know, since he was reelected quote unquote, uh, got back into, brought himself back into power in 2011, 2012. Uh, and then you had these huge 100,000 plus, uh, hundreds of thousands of people protesting in the large cities in Moscow, et cetera. And they were forcibly broken up. And that kind of uh, was seen as a real turning point for how the authoritarian progress would continue inside Russia itself. I think the large cities are largely, uh, are heavily uh, opposed to the war. To, to war period, uh, to very hostile to the Putin regime more generally. I think people to, there, for the most part, understand what's happening. Young people definitely understand what's happening. I think disproportionately, uh, it's because it's uh, the, the nature of that kind of state. Uh, it's difficult to get accurate uh, assessments of public opinion. Uh, maybe there are a couple of independent pollsters who are under tremendous political pressure. 
as well, uh, to understand what's happening in the countryside with Putin's traditional base. Uh, and as I've always said, the thing that, that that would get those people out on the streets and turn their, begin to really apply mass pressure politically on the regime that would make it start to either reconsider or think twice, etc., would be bodies coming home. You know, and there are now, on this our Ukrainian accounts, I think latest estimates are close to 4,000 dead. Uh, and this is only over a few days of this war happening. I mean, if you consider uh, how many of the troops the Russians lost in Chechnya over two years, and, and the number that their casualties are suffering now, dead, wounded, prisoners, etc. And so the Russians have only, I think, un- until yesterday, didn't even acknowledge that there were any casualties. So they're actively hiding. They're taking extreme measures to hide the casualties, who's been killed, how many have been captured. They're bringing up their reports in uh, British press of uh, Telegraph and others, I think, of a mobile crematoria that was being brought up to incinerate the bodies of the dead Russian soldiers to, again, reduce the number of casualties so that, and then their families would be told they were missing in action. We don't know their whereabouts, whereabouts they don't know. And so this is all an effort to prevent that from hitting his own, what's left of his own popular base of support. I think traditionally, even with everything that's happened by taking the most independent assessments of what of the of opinion inside Russia, I think Putin has a steady, uh, maybe, you know, 30 to 35% base of support, uh, more or less. I think that that's beginning to crack, but that, that, that core base I think is there. Um, and a lot of those people, get their information from state-run media almost exclusively to the extent they're even paying attention to politics. Many of them are apolitical. Many of them share some of these ideological nostalgia dreams of how things used to be, the certainties of the past, and buy into some of the rhetoric. And their view is, you know, uh, as long as Russia is quote-unquote strong, uh, it's fine that my living standards aren't as high as I would want them to be, and I'm still living in a shack, and or you know that, that things haven't really progressed or materially improved for me and my family. But there are larger forces at work, you know. So that that unfortunately is is still a base. But what that population won't forgive the regime for is if their fathers, sons, brothers, uncles come home in body bags, uh, and that's why the regime has been taking extreme measures, like I said, to limit that from happening and to confuse these people. But there's been uh, clearly a surge, even from people who prior to this were keeping quiet. Uh, those who were close to the regime, who were apolitical, wouldn't comment on any of these things, no matter what really happened, where they should have commented, I think. They're coming out now opposing the war, even if not openly critical of the regime, saying that this is a criminal war of aggression, you know, etc. And calling it what it is, they're just at least coming out and saying I'm anti-war and at being active in whatever channels that they can be active in. So you're definitely seeing this, but, and to kind of, uh, uh, to, to, to close that circle, um, part of the motive here for Putin is a deflection from the fact that he has been disinterested, in my view, uh, in dealing with Russia's domestic problems for years now. Uh, I think the COVID situation has only made him a bit more detached, uh, it go, uh, uh, moving more into himself. He's really not that interested with what's happening inside the country. I mean, Russia has enough structural problems as it is that he could be tending to. Uh, he prefers to be the epicenter of attention on the world stage. He prefers these types of deflections. He's done this time and again. And this is one of those foreign adventures to deflect from problems uh, at home. And... Um, 
And so uh, that's what he was hoping for here. Another repeat of 2014 with Crimea, that kind of a quick victory. Everybody was coming to him. Russia would be, again, taken seriously and quote-unquote respected, as I said at the beginning of our talk. Uh, and, uh, and and I think that, um, uh, and to a large extent, uh, that, that was another kind of deep motive for him to, at the same time, dramatically accelerate repression inside Russia. So on the issue of why can't more people come out, how mass is the opposition to the war? Uh, unfortunately, things that could have been done even in 2014 and were done really can't be done for fear of arrest and threats to physical safety in Russia today. So even sole, sole individual pickets that are under Russian law permitted without any prior permit, uh, registration or consultation with the authorities, they're swept away by the police in a matter of minutes. Um, and these protests that spontaneously erupted in all the, in, in the large Russian cities in Moscow and Petersburg almost immediately after the war broke out, uh, they were really suppressed with the speed and ruthlessness that I think we haven't seen in a while. And that, and, and okay, you mentioned Navalny, for example, he's now nearing the end of his latest trial where he is due to be uh, convicted and imprisoned for a further 15 years. So, I mean, as far as he's concerned, Putin is intent on ensuring that he never sees the light of day again. And he's kept and he's, you know, in a communications blackout. So the, the, this, this is what I call late stage authoritarian fatigue. And maybe political scientists might call it that, uh, that you have a massively increased level of repression inside the country and a greater eagerness to deflect with these kinds of adventures militarily beyond. And uh, for that and the other reasons that we, we talked about, he decided to make this move. And that's why what I see happening is um, I'm not, I'm not ruling out. I, I, I would like to still rule out the worst case outcome. And I think we should still rule all of that out. Uh, there are a number, I mean, everything that's happening right now is surreal. It's, it's hard for me to even like soberly continue this analysis because I'm just pinching myself. I can't, for those, for those of us who, have roots over there. It's just, it's just 1941 all over. It's just, you know, kind of ghosts of the past coming back to haunt us. Right. Um, uh, sorry, but, um, but I think the best case scenario would be, I think that this is politically for him, the beginning of the end. I think that he internationally is isolated in a way that wasn't the case before. I think he miscalculated on that. And I think that this will be maybe not immediately, uh, maybe it will take longer than many think it will, but this could be a real turning point that he really went too far. He really overplayed his hand. And the people who matter in this case are those inside the Kremlin, uh, in this, among the security establishment, the intelligence establishment, the more influential oligarchs, the people on his security council with whom he has made the collective decision to launch the invasion. Uh, enough of them, a critical mass of those people have to intervene and effectively sideline them whether that is through with guarantees from Western countries or some other promises of, I don't know, even though I would prefer that not to be the case, uh, but whatever to uh, begin that process, I think that is ideally the best way that this will end. Uh, do I think that there will be some kind of violent 1905, 1917 revolution in Russia over this? I don't think so. But honestly, I mean, you know, if thousands and thousands of casualties do come home and, 
he loses that remaining 30 to 35% support base and, and they come out, mothers come out into the streets. I don't know. Uh, this isn't new to Russian history. I mean, this has happened on a number of occasions. It ended very badly when these things happen. Uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, for example, uh, came out basically saying that it's revolution or nothing or something, you know, recently, um, to the extent you care about his opinion. But um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think that this will be a, there, there won't be a, I don't think, I'm not sure that there will be a situation where you have, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people in the streets, Putin will understand, take the temperature and uh, willingly move aside. I think that there will, if there is going to be a change, it's going to have to happen at the top from within the inner uh, circle, uh, giving him an ultimatum, which I think that what we're seeing now in his, in my view, almost increasingly uh, flailing decision to escalate and double down uh, could actually be closer than we think. Yeah, to be clear, I, I wasn't suggesting that there would be like revolution in the streets, although, as you say, oh, yeah, not wholly right. foreign, wholly foreign to uh, Russia's yeah, history, right, of course. But right, right. Um, no, but but his regime seems weaker in a way uh, that I haven't seen, at least. And I'm not as close an observer as you, obviously, um, of this. But but I was surprised by um, some of the seeming weakness of his regime at home, where I had assumed uh, there, as you say, that there were essentially um, longstanding uh, opposition and dislike within the cities, but that fundamentally his position was was more secure. Um, and there's at least a if there's a non-zero po possibility of nuclear war here, there's also seems to be a non-zero possibility uh, that that Putin will not be the fixture on the world stage that he has been for basically you know my entire political awareness. Um, but I, I wanted to close with a discussion about us here at home. Um, you know, and I, I've definitely been among the people who is is very, very disillusioned um, with American institutions, um, not only American politics, uh, you know, being rep Republican or Democrat, but with, with the ideological capture of American institutions, the incompetence of American institutions, um, and particularly a foreign policy establishment um, that seems both uh, ideologically wedded to a, what I would call as an anti-American creed, um, but also just unable to carry out the functions that they're supposed to be doing um, in any kind of minimally competent way for a world superpower. So, so you know, bracketing all of that and saying, okay, well, I, I am one of those who who is very disillusioned with our regime in the classical sense. I I, I guess my question here is, can an American-led order abroad endure um, at all if if uh, American institutions are so ideological and corrupt and hollowed out and trust in those institutions is at an all-time low? And, and the second part of that question would be, you know, how do we think, how ought we to think about essentially anti-American regimes abroad um, when we so mistrust our own, right? You, you start to see this. We've started to see this now on on the let's say the new right, right? That, um, yeah, sure, sure, Putin is an autocrat, but you know, <laughs> our our media at home may not be getting thrown into into jail, but they they certainly don't publish. They choose not to publish largely the corporate media here, 
chooses not to publish anything contrary to the narrative um, that that our regime wants, right? Um, you, you start to see these these moral equivalences, which I think go too too far. Um, but more fundamentally, the question of can we trust our own regime at all to represent our interests ab abroad? I think for the first time, I think one of the reasons you see uh, people repeating things that um, are being run on on state media, even if they're not getting them from Russian state media, they're these things now sound more reasonable. Putin's propaganda sounds more reasonable to people who are totally disillusioned with the American regime at home. Um, so how do you think about that question about our own, um, our own trust in, in our, not only our government, but our entire elite and ruling class and a foreign policy establishment that has been so deeply wrong um, so many times in the last 30 years? Yeah, uh, starting with the second part of that, I think you're completely right. I think that people have become desensitized, they've become dejected, they've become used to believing the absolute worst from our, I think, very shoddy, corrupt uh, media and political establishment for the most part. We haven't had a serious foreign policy conversation in the United States, national conversation, I think, since the end of the Cold War, since 1991. Uh, people, the American public has not been treated like adults. We've basically been told to assume uh, a certain status quo in foreign affairs without getting into the details that certain things are permanent. They're like the sky being blue or the earth revolving around the sun. And you're not really supposed to question any of these things. For example, the longstanding debate on what's the purpose of NATO. So when Tucker Carlson once asked on a show, why do we even have NATO? Why can't I ask that question? And he was immediately assailed by, you know, you're not allowed to ask that question. And so people are looking, looking at themselves and saying, well, why can't I ask that question? And then by, so, you know, uh, you should, and the people who are, have that other position on NATO and its importance and its mission and what they want to do with it or don't want to do with it should be in a position to intellectually engage on those questions and have that conversation. And I think, unfortunately, we've seen so much actual propaganda, genuine fake news on our end, and talking about the new right, who have become, you know, almost uh, connoisseurs and identifying, you know, fake news or disinformation or whatever, uh, you know, so when you see a CNN article praising, you know, the, the resistance of Vladimir Volodymyr Zelensky, what do these people think? Well, we've seen this all before. You know, I mean, if it wasn't Zelensky, they'd be praising, you know, like they praised the guy from Iraq who we were supposed to pretend was some kind of, you know, democratic warrior or, you know, the Afghan president who we uh, financed to the tune of tens of millions of dollars was robbing his country blind. And unlike Zelensky fled with a fleet of cars and a helicopter stuffed with 170 million in cash when the Taliban were on the outskirts of Kabul. And that was our, you know, someone who we basically propped up. And so naturally the reaction is, well, why isn't this exactly the same movie? Uh, kind of to your point. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I, you know, commented on that, which is basically, you know, take a step back and you should be able, you have to um, make the intellectual leap to parse through this information with a cynical eye, even if you, and I sympathize with that, you know, they've hoodwinked us time and again in the past. We've been let down, we've been misled, leading to terrible human and financial consequences for us, for the, for the country and for international position. So why should we believe a word of what they say here now? Um, and why should we care? Uh, I think that's also kind of part of that narrative. And that's a perfectly reasonable position to have, except 
you still need to not go to the other extreme. In other words, you don't then need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't have to go from one extreme on that pendulum to the other extreme. You know, that there are circumstances in which, no, these people are actually resisting in a, 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 against the war of aggression versus some other case where this, you know, the CNN reporter who would, you know, who exists, you know, operates within a three by five card of what can and can't be said about these things might not be very worldly. I don't know. Uh, just because somebody at CNN calls everything a fight for democracy doesn't mean everything is a fight for democracy. Just like everything isn't the civil war and just like everything isn't an establishment plot or something. You know, so I mean, if you want to be a serious analyst, I think you have to take the leap to try to parse through these differences and understand Ukraine is Ukraine, Iraq is Iraq, Syria is Syria, Libya is Libya, uh, China is China. I mean, you know, that, that's, that's what, that, that I think is a uh, um, evidence of maturity in how you process this information. Uh, and I think that's something that we're, there, there's so much information. It's, there's been so much noise. There's been so much deceit and actual disinformation that, you know, people naturally don't know who to believe or what to believe anymore. And they find themselves just repeating things because, like, exactly, I agree with you, it sounds reasonable. I mean, they're Russian speakers. I think it was, uh, I, I don't remember who who made that comment on, it was on Newsmax or somewhere else. I think it might have been, um, uh, I don't remember, I think he was one of an official for the Trump administration, I forgot who it was. Basically saying, they want to be part of Russia. They speak Russian in Kharkiv and eastern Ukraine, ethnic Russians. It's a civil war. They want to be part of Russia. These guys want to be part of Ukraine. Uh, why are we wasting our time? So you let the Europeans deal with it. And yet we're seeing, of course, in Kharkiv right now, this, the people who are so desperate to be part of Russia are being indiscriminately shelled with grad rockets and artillery because they apparently just to emphasize the point of how debt by the Russians who really, really want them to be part of Russia. And apparently, you know, they were so enthusiastic about it that they had to be bombed with rockets and artillery, right? So, but but yet if you're not, you know, able to recognize these nuances, that sounds perfectly plausible, right? Like we, we, like we had with uh, Afghanistan, like we had with Iraq, like in Syria, where we were, where we were told, you know, everyone who opposed Assad was a, would be Jefferson, you know, where, when of course we knew that that could not be further from the truth, right? But then, uh, you know, so, and you weren't allowed to, to acknowledge that, right? So, and to say that everyone who is on the side of Ukraine or fighting in Ukraine is a Jefferson or a Madison? No, they're not. Uh, but then you get, uh, but that doesn't mean you then swing to the other side of the pendulum to say Ukraine is not a democracy, as I answered. Well, Ukraine is not a democracy because, you know, uh, the, Zelensky had a, um, he wanted to, you know, imprison Poroshenko, try Poroshenko, uh, and, and put out a warrant against him. He was trying to close down some uh, media channels that were, uh, very critical of him or, you know, that, that, that uh, disfavored one of the oligarchs that was more influential in Kiev and, and in his government, etc. cetera. Uh, well, first of all, in the case of that Poroshenko incident, a court in Ukraine prevented that from happening. So they uh, ruled that uh, these uh, charges that some wanted to bring against Poroshenko for treason, he's actually now there, there with a territorial army unit, <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, in the streets of Kiev fighting, or at least, you know, uh, patrolling. Uh, but uh, he was brought up on treason charges, and a court in Ukraine uh, ruled that those had no merit. Do you, do you think for a second that would have happened in Putin's Russia against one of Putin's political opponents? 
right? Or in China, for that matter. Uh, and uh, yes, there are, uh, Ukraine is not Denmark. I don't think anybody is admitting that it is. But, you know, to, to call even Zelensky an illegitimate uh, president or somebody who wasn't freely and fairly, fairly elected, and this, to say that Ukraine doesn't have basic institutions that we would consider liberal or democratic is just wrong. It's a flawed democracy. I described it actually citing uh, Boris Nemtsov, who was a you know, famous uh, Russian opposition figure who was assassinated in 2015, actually. Anniversary of that was yesterday, tragically. Um, you know, he compared Ukraine to a truck on a very bumpy pothole-filled Ukrainian road rumbling along toward Europe with three people who hate each other trying to grab the wheel, you know, and, 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 and yet the, the truck continues meandering down that road. That's what Ukraine is. It's a, of course, it's a flawed country. It's been independent, really, properly for 30 years. It doesn't quite know exactly what it is. After this conflict, I think it's going to know answer, answer those questions a lot better and a lot more clearly, uh, for sure. But I think, uh, and there's an incredible amount of national unity from what I'm seeing on the ground. But uh, to then just basically say Ukraine is another Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria, I think it just shows a level of laziness or almost corruption that uh, you know, it's it's almost difficult to know how to engage with that. Uh, and sadly, I think uh, that uh, y- there has to be some way. The only way that I can think of to overcome that is to just give people accurate information, engage with them as adults, and try to get them to better parse through this overload of material that they're having to understand when they don't know a lot of the context and you don't expect them to know a lot of the context. And on the point about where does the U.S. go from here on the world stage and its position, uh, I mean, I think that depends on us. I think it depends on how we prioritize our national interest. I think it should lead to a much more serious foreign policy conversation nationally, not just when people are running for president and not just reduced to America strong, bad guys weak, America democracy, bad guys, evildoers, access. I mean, we, we can't do that anymore, right? I mean, uh, and and part of why I'm happy we're having this discussion here is we can move beyond that. We have a format uh, where we can really move beyond that kind of uh, third grade level of, if you want to call it commentary, uh, to something much more substantive and that people can understand. You know, this is something that is important for the U.S. in terms of our interests, in terms of our economy, in terms of our trading relationships, in terms of our partnerships, in terms of our physical security. We have to care about this versus this, which is far less important meaning it's an issue, but we shouldn't lose a tremendous amount of sleep over it. We shouldn't dedicate too many resources to, to dealing with that. And, and we have to be able to do that to discriminate much better and understand where what our real threats are, not the things that we would like to waste our time on, but actual problems so that when these kinds of crises occur, we're not constantly playing catch up. We're not caught by surprise and having to scramble to figure out a response that we would, or as I would say, we need to do foreign policy strategically. And for most of American history, we've been very bad at doing that. Uh, We've always been, you know, crisis happens, we respond. After that, we go back to sleep and uh, turn on the football game. Like the people who are in the foreign policy business, we need a new establishment involved with that. Uh, We need people who are looking ahead 10, 20 years, not 10, 20 minutes. Uh, and, and also looking at these issues, not from the standpoint of comms and optics constantly, uh, who's tougher, who's weaker among our politicians, 
but just purely cerebrally in terms of what our national interests are. And I think that how we're reacting to this now and where this may eventually go uh, will really help and accelerate that process. Uh, we we can only hope. And and of course, there's, there's no rule that there's um, only one bad guy at any time or any type or only one type to be a, a one type of way to be a bad guy, right? That's the other kind of fallacy that um, I personally have been frustrated by, by um, some, some commentators that I, I normally find uh, very interesting and actually have something very um, good and substantive to say on the domestic side and on American politics, um, but seem to have not be able to distinguish between critiquing their own regime and assuming that every grievance against the American-led order for the last hundred years must therefore have some merit. Um, and I, I think those two things are very conceptually different. They can be, as, as you, you have so so well in the last hour or so, um, distinguished for us. Uh, th- those things can be separated. They, they indeed need to be separated if America is, is uh, gonna, gonna make it not only domestically, but um, to actually be able to be a, a world superpower. Um, and, and to keep any semblance of an American-led order in the world. So, Boris, thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, people can follow you on Twitter um, at, I think it's, is it B. Rivkin? Correct, yeah. Um, they can follow you at, B, at B. Rivkin. And then um, I believe you are in the works of launching um, your own Substack with this kind of analysis um, on this and many Actually, other Actually, uh, I have to uh, add a little caveat. It, it would be a Substack, but it would be more focused on... Uh, uh, commercial commentary, legal mergers and acquisitions, corporate type commentary, what I used to do, uh, rather than just pure uh, politics or policy. Yeah. Okay, so then that was my bad. But yes, you are going to be launching um, a commentary site, and you will continue to to write in all the places that I, I listed in the beginning. And you can find Boris's co- uh, commentary day to day, especially he's been, as I said in the beginning, an invaluable resource for me personally, in terms of I, I just go to Boris's feed and a couple other uh, folks that I actually trust to get a sense of how this war is progressing in Ukraine to get level headed analysis that is not bought in um, ideologically, uh, either either with sort of um, our domestic foreign policy establishment, but also, uh, you know, aware of, of, as you say, sorting through some of the disinformation uh, that, that exists uh, in terms of Putin's regime and, and um, the fog of war on the ground. So I've personally found it really, really helpful. I, I highly recommend that all of my listeners go and follow Boris on Twitter as well. And uh, so, Boris, thank you so much for coming coming on High Noon. Thanks so much, Inez. Take care. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.